You're listening to The Razor's Edge. The Razor's Edge is an investing podcast. Your hosts are Akram's Razor, an investor and trader with decades of experience in markets, and me, Daniel Schwarzman, who has been focused on the market as a career for the past decade. We take investing ideas or themes we're interested in and break them down, or we speak with expert guests to get a wider understanding of a given topic. To get episodes of The Razor's Edge, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you have a chance, or share this show with a friend. You can also check out our work on Seeking Alpha under our respective names, or reach us on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman or at Akram's Razor. Our standard disclaimer and disclosure. The Razor's Edge is a Shortman Studios production. The views discussed belong to either Akram or me, respectively, or to our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. We'll disclose any positions in any stocks discussed at the end of the podcast or during our introduction to the given episode. Semiconductor shortages have been one of the big economic themes emerging in 2021 in our light-at-the-end-of-the-tunnel pandemic stage. I have to mention the pandemic because that's approximate cause of many of the shortages in supply chain issues that beset the semiconductor industry and many others. The auto industry has been a headliner for having to shut production due to lack of semis. And with some grumbling between China and the U.S. over Taiwan, the key role that that island plays in the supply chain also looks like a vulnerability. So on today's episode of The Razor's Edge, we attempt to navigate the economic, geopolitical, and investing implications of all this talk while zeroing in on the semiconductor supply chain and its oligopolistic, specialized nature. Say that three times fast. Disclosures for this episode are no positions for either of us, so let's just jump in. All right, Akram, we're talking semiconductors today. I think there's a bit... there. Are, semiconductors are in the headlines for a few different reasons. And I think one of the maybe most present but also enduring factors on the table is you hear a lot of, for example, the auto industry, increasingly electronic cars, not even just in the EV sense, but just in the dashboard, everything else. Factories are being paused, suspended, production shut down because there's a backlog in semiconductors, which strikes people as new and weird and sort of different. And the whole pandemic has led to questions of what capacity do we need in the U.S.? There was, I I don't know where the status is right now, but Intel has wavered on whether or not they're going to start foundries again. Taiwan Semiconductor was talking about a plant in Arizona. What do you, let's just start with this whole nationalistic current or this not quite nationalistic but this need to have capacity here what it means for the semiconductor industry what do you make of what's going on and how that ties back to the shortages that are happening in the auto industry if at all okay i mean uh i think it's it's definitely the space is interesting and it's what we've been long overdue for anything here i don't think we've done anything on chips since nvidia i think in this space now like covid has created kind of well, think back before COVID. Before COVID, we were we were in a bit of like, let's call it uh, trade war 
sensitivity around around semiconductors. So we kind of went into COVID with some distortions in the space. Trump administration, you know, went after Huawei. Huawei's got a chip design firm, H Silicon, which has become very competitive globally. I think it would be like if it was an independent company, top three or four independent fabulous chip companies, right? They've got a Kirin processor, you know, a DaVinci neural net architecture, NNP, you know, they do very good modems, they had aspirations in 5G, et cetera, et cetera. And essentially for, you could argue competitive reasons and political national security reasons, Huawei was essentially choked off. And as that happened, that caused certain distortions in this, you know, let's call it highly interdependent supply chain that has a lot of different, let's say, choke off points in it that you can focus on. Like one thing that they did with H Silicon is they made it so that the uh, electronic design automation software companies, which are essentially a, a U.S. duopoly these days, I mean, there was three, but the top two, Cadence and, and Synopsys, and then the th third one was Mentor, which I think the Germans bought, but still U.S.-based. I think it's probably subsidiary of Siemens now. But there's two companies, essentially, that like once you get below like a 12 nanometer node, you're dependent on these two companies. So you can't design a chip, which these days on the high end can be a four or 500 million endeavor at seven nanometers from what was, you know, 150 million at 10 and 12. So, and just to jump in and not to, we don't need to go beginner level, but the graphics companies, the cadences and synopses, they're for the higher, like more than 12 nanometer chips. And my understanding is those are less sophisticated or less state of the art. They You fit less onto the chip than you do down at the seven nanometer, which yeah, is as the cutting as edge. The, as the geometries shrink, right, and you're putting more transistors on, and the software tools become far more critical in, in the design. I mean, they're still used for everything else, but to be competitive, like you're essentially locked in. And remember, like you, you have the fabulous chip designers that are using it. You have the foundry. This is like a very collaborative process. And that's kind of what we, we want to get into here in the sense that like there isn't this like magical, mystical giant, you know, right off the coast of China in Taiwan that is doing everything by itself that is sitting there one day should the Chinese invade the island that's going to destroy the entire uh, U.S. economy. Like that's kind of, there's everything that's tied into the chain is broken up. I mean, let's go through the chain in itself. Like if you think about the semiconductor business, okay, in general, you think about things like memory, okay? DRAM, for example. DRAM is the market dominated by the Koreans. 95% of the market is, is three companies. The Koreans are about, let's say, 75% of it in, in, in Samsung and SK Hynix. And then the third one being Micron. And that market, the lifespan of nodes is very short. So like they're, they're integrated device manufacturers. They're doing everything themselves. And they're it's like, you know, they're moving very quickly and you essentially got to keep up with Samsung. That's DRAM. There's NAND, which is essentially, again, split between the Koreans, uh, I'd say the Koreans and the Japanese at Koyexa, which between them, Koyexa or Konexa, I don't know how it's pronounced, but so the Japanese giant in NAND, who, by the way, also like 
Western Digital uses their foundries. That's another market. Were they the so, Micron's a player in there as well, I think, but also mm-hmm. was, was Connexa the one that was recently one of those Japanese semiconductor companies was rumored to be for sale or somebody was making a move on them? I did you catch that anywhere? I don't, I, don't, I don't know if it was them. I mean, look, the Japanese used to be very big in everything in the ecosystem. I mean, if you look at the chip space and you go back to like circa 2000, you know, the Japanese were like, you know, 30% market share. They're now down to like something like five. Right. Okay. So and let me Kyo- see if I can find the name. Kyoxia is the one that was reported by Bloomberg said they might be, or Bloomberg in the journal. Yeah, Kyoxia. Yeah. Okay. They were for sale? They were, journal said that Micron and Western Digital were considering making bids. Bloomberg had reported that they're planning an IPO instead. So NAND flash yeah, company. Sense, by the way, with, with Western Digital uh, because of uh, the fact that they use their foundries. But between, between Kyoxia and Samsung, you're looking at 70%. Okay. And then like, what's the, what's the next step in the chain? Uh, when we think of chips, there's the IP x86 intel amd amd uh, intel being integrated device manufacturer amd now being fabulous arm on the mobile side and remember these guys also have joint ventures with china arm uh, and arm china where they create ip the chinese also have an upcoming attempt you know at their own x86 i don't remember the name it's like huexa or something it starts with an h but i think hp is making some notebooks based on that architecture because the Chinese want to remove US-based x86 from their government. So like that's kind of one of one of, one of their initiatives. And so we're many. we're talking now whether they're CPUs or whatever, but we're talking about the chips that are considered the main units in computers. And Intel is known for creating their own chips historically, whereas AMD by Fabulous, they outsourced to. I mean, AMD used to be integrated, but yes, it's now Fabulous. They split it up, and now they use Taiwan Semiconductor. Part of the issues lately with with Intel is that Intel's had has has had problems with ten nanometer, which, by the way, Intel's ten nanometer, like from a density standpoint, is more dense than TSM and Samsung seven nanometer. Like Intel ten nanometer would probably be not far off from what TSM calls five nanometer from, from a density standpoint. Where Intel's run into issues is interconnects, like Infinity Fabric has gotten really good yields for AMD. We're getting off topic here, but when we think about like when we think about the CPU, what, my point was is that there's architectures and IP wise. And that's been like a duopoly in X86. An ARM has essentially been a monopoly on, on, on the mobile side. And you have to license that IP. So like you have IP, you have DRAM, you have NAND. When you think about the things that go into, into you know, computing technology, then you have like, you know, the back end, right? And this is like when Apple makes the iPhone, Taiwan Semiconductor is a contract manufacturer for essentially anybody. But like, if you think about it these days, it's like half their business is smartphones. And in that business, like the bulk of it is Apple. So essentially Taiwan Semiconductor 30% or so of their business, right, is Apple. Apple design stuff. Whenever you buy an Apple product, you see it designed in California, right? Made in China, yeah. Made in China, 
or assembled, but, whatever. Yes, the, the assembled in China, but the the manufacturing arm of you know their close collaborator, essentially for making their chips for everything, is TSM. And we can get into points later down the road where people are like, you need to build this here. And it's like, well, I mean, the reason this model exists this way is that the likes of Apple, Google, and uh, Facebook, et cetera, can leverage a company like this and work with them with these tools that are, that are the ecosystem. And like part of the tools, for example, is the EDA software, which we were talking about, Cadence and Synopsis, right? So you need a, you need a fab. And that fab, by the way, needs capital equipment. And this can be like, you know, KLAC 10 core for metrology quality control. It can be applied materials for plasma etching. And it can be a company which like these days, you know, is like a one of a kind in, in ASML for extreme ultraviolet lithography, right? Like to make the magic happen at seven nanometer and lower now, there's one company that makes photolithography machines. And like that one company has 5,000 suppliers, but it's got just a couple critical ones. There's, a, there's a, I think it's Zeiss in, in Germany and Trump, not Trump, <laughs> Trump with an F. And I mean, I think one of them, the, the laser technology that allowed them to, to do what they're doing at, at these really short wavelengths for photolithography started with, a, a, it used to be public. I don't know if you ever followed it. I used to follow it back in the day, Simer. Signer, I don't. Simer, Simer. They made they, they made lasers. They're based in San Diego. Okay, no, I missed that one. A, a, ASML acquired them at one point because they, they essentially made like the first breakthrough that you needed to, for from an opt, optic standpoint, to get to this EUV technology. And you know, with ASML and 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 Simer inside of it, and and this company Trump and, and Z's, you know, you've got Germany. The, the Netherlands, the US, and like really special. I mean, like you're talking about like 130, 40, 50 million dollar machines that you, you need like several 747s to carry the equipment, but that is shipped over to Taiwan and they work with them, you know, as they develop their new nodes. So, highly collaborative process is the point I'm making, right? So, a lot of things have to come together, like. The designers who are designing these chips at Apple and NVIDIA and the likes, you know, using this type of software, working in conjunction with the, the fab, in this case, TSM, who also is working very closely with the people advancing the uh, providing the capital equipment that's facilitating their ability to advance their technology and uh, the, their fabrication abilities. So like, that's where you get kind of to this point of like, what are you accomplishing by locating a foundry in America? And like, that's where you have to really kind of like think about the semiconductor supply chain, because I mean, there's people these days writing articles that like, it's a very scary thought. The Chinese don't recognize Taiwanese independence and like the F-35, you know, one day may not have chips if, if like, you know, the Chinese... I'm assuming the, the implication that well, what's being implied is invade or take over Taiwan. That seems to be essentially kind of what, what hangs out there. But like when you think about what, what you've got the wafers, the really, really fine silicon, you know, that's 50% Shinitsu and Sumco from Japan or 60%, right? 
And there's very particular chemicals and gases that go into the space, which also come like there was a beef between the Japanese and the Koreans. And the Japanese kind of tried to choke off some of the chemicals. And this was just a few years ago. And they put the like, this space is being used a lot from a trade war standpoint. And it's being, it's being politicized. And the space functions highly well because there are specialists spread around, around the world. Because breakthroughs are very hard and it requires a lot of collaboration. So specialization is key. That sort of leads to these end states where each of these, you talked about DRAM being three or four players and IP is only a handful of players and the EDA is three players. Like it just happens that in pretty much every facet that matters. It's very ballistic is, is the word. Right. It just by thus, because we've had a lot of consolidation in the space, right? I mean, over the last, it, and you've talked about this whether Zillinx or Arm has, you know, SoftBank, and now it's going over to NVIDIA. I guess the, the first one doesn't really count as consolidation. The, the news today was that the, the UK is looking at that from a national security standpoint. You know what? They should. <laughs> well, because they were. Arm is a UK company, right? That, I remember that being an mm-hmm. issue when SoftBank bought them, too. But the consolidation isn't vertical, I assume. It's more because you can't... Vertical integration is kind of tough just because you're going to have, at a certain point, Taiwan Semiconductor, or you're going to have Micron and SK Hynix and Samsung. They have specialized moats and expertise in their space, and they're only going to get, the gross profits are only going to be so high in each given sector, but they're going to have their share. Is that the... And that's the reason you can't just pop off TSM and move to a seven nanometer at Samsung, Okay. I mean, Samsung clearly does a lot, right? Between from the memory to they're doing logic, you know, they're making their phones, but like they still in-source components, you know, RF and uh, display uh, image sensors, et cetera, to make a phone, right? And they're depending on other people to manufacture those. But it wouldn't be, it's not seamless to be like, I'm just going to go and move what I was making at TSM at Samsung on the same node because there's so much that goes in to working closely together when you're essentially using, you know, a contract boundary in the way that you're using a TSM. And TSM for, I mean, they're like 50% share, but if you think about it in pure logic, they have a huge share, which is like where we get into this kind of debate around where we're at today with the shortages. I'd say something around 75% of Taiwan semiconductors revenue comes from process nodes that are 28 nanometers or lower. And the stuff you're reading about and that's been grabbing headlines is much more in this, like, let's call them the, the IDMs in, in, in auto, in analog, you know, companies like Rensas, uh, NXP, ST Micro, TXN. When they went to 300 millimeter wafers, the idea was that like 200 millimeter would die. but it turns out there's a ton of companies that really like to build on, on the 200, meter, 200 millimeter fab lines because it's like very mature and very low cost. And if you're on the analog end and it's like these IoT sensors, power converters, these types of things, display ICs, like you're not getting this huge benefit when you move from you know one ge- geometry to a lower geometry to a lower geometry, 
it's not like these, you know, AI ASICs or GPUs or like the, the, you know, the heavy duty server processors that are running the entire cloud, right? So, but the, the irony is in digitization, like the volume in that area has grown, but the investment in that area has been relatively stagnant. So you're perennially running very, very tight supply at that level. So on the one hand, you don't, the, what we're asking the chips that go behind the dashboard of a car are not as, like, you don't need as much out of that, right? Because we're basically going on and off or you're displaying something or you're pulling on a phone or whatever else. Like, it's a simpler set of re, set of requirements is the first part of that. And then there's not a lot of historic, like, there's not a lot of margin to be gained by then investing a ton. Look, for the automotive industry, like, there's some stuff where, like, you know, you're, you, you want the process not to change over 20 years. And analog, when you think about like what makes that electric motor tick, we're not thinking about the ones and zeros. It's the RF microcontrollers, the, the, the power management integrated circuits, everything that you're thinking about sensor-wise, IoT, et cetera. And this is where we've seen a huge boost in volume because you can make these chips at nodes from you know, 350 down to you know, 45 nanometer or 90 nanometer or whatever it is, right? And they're doing them on, on the 200 millimeter dies, right? Not the 300 millimeter dies. So if you're TSM, you haven't really been investing in that because you're not making that much money. You, you kind of want these people eventually to migrate to lower geometries and to 300 millimeter where you're investing. Okay. So there is a, if I zoom out for a second, I can assume I can probably make a general assumption that semiconductor demand is still going to grow long-term, I would think, right? The world is getting digitized. Yeah, cars cars are a great example. And we're not going to say that it's not going to zero. I'm not trying to make the, what are semiconductors going away? But isn't there an argument that if we're at just-in-time capacity or whatever you want to call it, very lean capacity, that there's some benefit to... Insourcing more of that to the U.S., where there's more control over supply for these critical industries. What you can argue about autos, but autos. Have so, like, explain to me what happens if you're going to do that, right? So, let's say, like, it, this is a really good question because what's happened here recently is the automotive industry, when COVID hit, pulled back. All right, and the demand in let's call it notebooks gaming, people making a home office with equipment, monitors, displays, everything around that took off. Those guys came in and took that extra capacity because you mean you got like a once in, you know, a generation type of surge in demand for new notebooks and new iPads uh, for schools and uh, little cameras, like everybody needs a webcam, right? all these little things that came out of nowhere who did not have demand anywhere near that. And as soon as the automotive stuff started coming back, like these components are being made at these older, more mature, less cutting edge. Cause this is where the debate was before the debate before was, well, you know, we, we like, we don't want it. Like Apple shouldn't be at the knees of an invasion of Taiwan. Right. And like, will our iPhones be able to work and, and stuff like the F 35 and stuff like that. 
this is really flipped in the sense that like, like the airline industry, which had demand destruction, there was a huge demand boost that disrupted the supply chain. And we already were running kind of tight here. And even the IDMs, when you think of like an NXP, they've been going to, they were traditionally, you know, integrated manufacturers. They've been going fab light. So like they've got a partnership with, with TSM, for example, where they've committed to move their next automotive platform to a, a leading edge process tech that TSM is, is rolling out. So you have, a, you have a little bit of that in the mix where they also, to maximize profits, have been going in that direction. So like you're running these businesses to make money. And if you're running these businesses to make money, part of the name of the ball game, you know, over the last 10, 15 years has been consolidation and making sure there's very, very, very little what? Slack. Correct. Not to... No pun, no, no pun intended, <laughs> yeah. right? So if you're running spare capacity, that's a big deal. So like this is an industry that historically had very boom and bust cycles, and there'd be periods where you've overinvested. And that's what it was like after the 2000 crash. You had a ton of component guys, and they would come up, and they'd, they'd make a breakthrough. Broadcom wouldn't even buy them. They'd just hire the engineers, and they'd beat them to the next evolution of the chip, and like the business would be pointless. And nobody was interested. Like TSM, if you remember when I was doing the NVIDIA short, it was one of the longs that I pitched at the time as a hedge on everybody being excited about this trend because I was like, look, I mean, like the story is hyperscale. And the story is the giants making everything for themselves. And like, you know, here is their manufacturing arm. Like there's like that, that old joke during COVID that like Etsy is the manufacturing arm of Pinterest. When you look at TSM, like if 30% of your business is Apple, you're kind of their manufacturing arm. I mean, it's yes, like you have sizable things in your, the rest of your business, which was like, Right now, what is it? 50, 55% smartphone, right? So like right after them, you've got what? MediaTek, Huawei is still in there. And then probably like a company like Supermicro or whatever in the mix buying components. But maybe Supermicro, I'm not sure. Is Supermicro making their own mode chips? I don't think so. That's, that's, I don't I remember MediaTek. I remember. They... MediaTek definitely is huge. Uh, they've, they've taken a lot of market share recently with, with with Huawei's problems. Well, but they got bought out by a Chinese company, right? That was the... No, no, MediaTek is, MediaTek is Taiwanese. Oh, I'm, I must be thinking of somebody else then. I would, I'm confusing them with somebody. Well, the space is confusing. I mean, there's no, no denying that. But it's, it's, it is interesting because I think what I'm getting from that is that Taiwan is basically... The Taiwan Semiconductor, the simplest, this is dumb, but... The simplest way to think about them is as a factory. You just go and make your stuff and they have the high end, but they're just the end of the line, which would seem like a low margin business. Their margins are pretty healthy, which then if they are, it makes you wonder, obviously, whenever there are margins, it's you develop something that can at least be a competitor, but their place in that global ecosystem, I guess, is so firm and there are a couple other foundries out there right there's tower semiconductor is a foundry as well here's a way of, here's a way of looking at it right right now they're talking about apple google facebook and these guys like i've seen people write papers like they need to get together and put together a hundred billion dollar fund and 
get subsidies essentially from the government incentives to build, like Apple can have like they're a big enough business that they can have their own foundry. Okay. You know, and what would that do to the return on capital? It would change the mix because that's capital intensive. So like this is part of the, like you need to think about the semiconductor space. Like this is where you get into this whole Taiwan element. Like one, it's important to see the interdependencies. Like we could build a fab here, but like let's say you have a problem tomorrow with you know Japan or you have an issue you know tomorrow with Korea. That's all fine and dandy, but if you're going to build the fabs here, are you going to then just ship the chips to China because China's consuming roughly. 60% of all semiconductors. So when you think about the Chinese and you think about global trade in general, the Chinese this, in, in 2020 imported like something like 385 billion chips. That number is a little over 20% of all their imports. So they import more chips than they do oil, natural gas, and soybeans combined. <laughs> They're top three commodity imports. So they're highly chip dependent. And the, the way the chain works, I mean, yes, like Taiwan is right off the coast and a lot of it's being shipped there, but they're buying those chips to feed the demand from the rest of the world, <laughs> a large percentage of it, because they're doing the value add in the chain, right? Like what percentage of notebooks are made in China? What percentage of smartphones in the world are made in China? Like the final put together in assemblies. It's employing millions and millions and millions of people in that country. So if we locate a fab, like if you think about like today, the US and Europe have probably 20% of global capacity in, in, in the space. And they were probably at you know, the turn of uh, the millennium at like 40%. But if you were to think about the US market, this is why I find stuff like, you know, what about the F-35? It's like, dude, like we can have a leading edge fab to make enough chips for the F-35 for the next decade. <laughs> you know, I mean, the U.S. market in of itself, the 340 or 50 million people, is not the end. This is where things get complicated if you're Apple. Like Apple last quarter grew in dollar terms the revenue more in greater China than they did in, in the entire Western world combined. So you have end demand. That's notable that's coming from there. And like, this is when you get into Tesla with the plans in EV. They have end demand that's notable and coming from there. You look at the US market and what benefit are you getting by adding a couple foundry projects in the country if the leading edge drivers are going to continue to be the machine that is the Chinese and they're dependent on it? Because look, if we woke up tomorrow and the Chinese could make everything themselves, and like, I'm, they would be very happy if they could, because when it's 20% plus of your imports, you've got them by the balls. And it's spread out in so many different ways, shapes, and form that you've made it, like, it, it's very difficult for them to just copy and steal. So when you get to that point, well, okay, let's say that happens tomorrow, and they're completely self-sufficient. Them being completely self-sufficient means they're shipping everything that they're, they're making to the rest of the world as well as their own market, because they're already sitting in the consumer electronics value chain as the manufacturer because of the nature of that industry. So when you think about it that way, two things happen. One, you've got a competitive problem big time. 
But two, what do you have to give them trade-wise? When you think about, I'm going to put this fab here, it's like, well, we're going to also start building factories to make blenders and refrigerators. Like, this, Do we have the labor capacity in the United States to essentially replicate you know, antibiotics? Like, this is when you get into this debate around supply chain resiliency. You got to be a little bit practical about it. Like, If I was to ask you to war game out like what could go wrong with Taiwan, like there is no scenario that the Chinese can do anything that doesn't screw them. But let's say they blow up Taiwan. They have a dispute and they nuke it. How does that help them? They consume 60% of the chips, you know, worldwide. So they're screwing themselves because those jobs that exist, once those components cross into their shore, and I mean, they, they also do have a decent amount of, of fab capacity on the mainland that is being run by foreign companies, but still the ball coming from outside, they're in trouble. And let's say they just took it over and like seized it and made everybody in there like become forced laborers. You're just going to work for us all day long and, 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 you know, make the apple chips, right? Well, you've got the software that's going to be cut off. You've got the designers who are going to stop working with you, right? Again, how many iPhones are you buying in China? Like, how many things does it support? Like, so it's not necessarily like Taiwan sits there, but like, it would be just a, a state of complete total war between the West and them. That's like, when you look at it, it's kind of immaterial because if they were to do that, okay, nobody's going to do business with them. And they're going to choke themselves off. They don't have the technology. So you're making the, the, the geopolitical argument that economic interdependency is the best guarantee of peace to a certain degree. And Taiwan Semi may or may not be the golden goose that China can't, that kind of... They can do nothing with it. There's yeah. nothing they can do with it. It freezes okay? the situation. Because and and if you think about it from a practical terms, people talk about like the F-35 or they talk about, you know, this is what we're doing for our telco infrastructure. But it's like, if you're at a state of war with them over chips, well, what about the antibiotics? What about all the goods and the clothing and the garments and everything else that comes out of there? You're going to instantaneously overnight, if the, two, if the world's two largest economies were to stop trading, and that's essentially what you're implying. So- the only way you could look at it where you could say it's strategic in a manner that like we can continue to have kind of a detente where we continue to buy, we continue to trade with each other, but like they, they managed to accelerate some strategic gap, you know, like being, becoming a nuclear power, for example. That's, a, that's an accomplishment for, to put yourself essentially on the map as a power player, right? The Iranians have been trying to do it. Pakistanis accomplished it. Like, there's been different points in time, right? Where it's like, once you get there, your bargaining chips in international relations are, you're going to be treated differently. You've doubled so your stack. Yeah. Correct. You've doubled your stack. Is there something that you can get by like subsuming Taiwan? And like, that's the point is that like you have to subsume them in a way and then like to be able to kind of like sit there like the Borg and like suck out the knowledge. And the whole point is, the knowledge and the rest of it is so spread out. If you were to cause a ruckus, you got the Japanese. You can't do anything with a chip without memory, okay? You've got the Koreans. 
And then you, you, you've got the guys designing the end products and marrying it to the software, you know, in the Western world. So like the whole ecosystem is, is set up in a way that they are all interdependent. So any person who, who, who lays out that argument as like they don't recognize Taiwanese independence, like if they could have at this point done something, you know, where that strategic asset is sitting there and it can eliminate 20% of their imports by walking in and figuring it out, they would have done something about it by now. It's, 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 it's not complicated. Well, and it sounds to me also, if we go back to the shortages that are happening right now and what's going on, and also kind of to put a different frame on this, is that you've we've mentioned COVID a few times, and as as excited as we are about the potential of COVID restrictions coming down or whatever, even if best case scenario and vaccines are distributed well enough that spread stops or goes to, you know, where it is right now in countries that are super advanced in the vaccine distribution, by the end of the year, there's still a period of unwinding and of catching up on all of these things. And so when you're talking about cars, you know, and we talked when we talked to George from the shift technology, the used car company, like weird used cars were a winner because new cars weren't being built. So now you're trying to catch up to capacity. You have changing models, et cetera. Like there's a lot of this hiccuping going on in the supply chain that you need to think about. You need to think about having redundancies for vital things. You need to think about whether you want to have. But do you? Like, is it, can you really plan for COVID? Because if you plan for the redundant, if you put redundancies in place on autopilot on a plane or brakes, uh, anti-lock brakes, you know, backup system, a lead R for, you know, an autonomous car, the co-pilot, these types of things for stuff day to day that provides, let's call it safety. Great. If you have redundancies in place for your government in case you get hit by a nuclear attack, right? That's, again, like the type of thing you plan for a rainy day. If you're going to put redundancies in place, you know, from a supply chain standpoint, for a COVID, where a lot of stuff goes wrong in this, you know, well-oiled machine that is just-in-time global trade, then you're going to be less capital efficient, you're going to be less profitable, and at some point, people are going to look at it like the airlines or whatever, and they're going to say, why don't you do a stock buyback? Why are you running a factory that has 20% spare capacity? Because that becomes a drag on future growth, big time down the road. Again, this is why you look at stuff and you say, you can't make everything internally in your country. That's the Soviet Union. It failed. Okay? It's true. It's true. But it's been proven. So when you sit there and you start saying, I need to be able to do this, I need to be able to do that, I mean... Like there's this great book that I, you know, loved reading growing up about David Ricardo visiting, you know, this America that was just about to become very isolationist in a Christmas Carol fashion. I don't know if we talked about it before on the podcast, but it's, you know, like when you think about like we went through this in the late 80s with the Japanese, and it's been proven that you need to be able to trade efficiently for the global economy to function, okay? And if you're going to go in the direction 
of doing things internally, like we may end up at a point where there's a chip design team in Botswana manufacturing leading edge, you know, chips for the Chinese <laughs> through a foundry based in, in, in Shenzhen and selling this stuff around the world. Like if you're constantly moving forward of the way it works, you have the advantage. Like I, personally, I think the best way you do it is you keep them hooked if you want to be competitive. Keep who hooked? Sorry, what do you mean by that? Your supposed uh, arch nemesis. In this case, it seems to be China. You know, the up and coming threat to you as the number one economic power. So if they have to continue to buy your equipment, you make it very difficult for them to burn billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars trying to replace it. And then they're again, dependent on you. So like part of the problem, the Chinese have foundry, like I think it's uh, SMIC. It, I think it just managed to do something at maybe 12 nanometers or, or seven, but like, you know, it's four years behind TSM, 90% of the revenue is, is older nodes. But like, this is a source of demand to plug some of the current problems in the chain. They can spend on, on the capital equipment to create that excess capacity that we would be taking advantage of today. So the fact that you have them kind of scrambling out, they've made progress in two areas, essentially speaking. You know, chip design with Huawei, you know, the Kirin processor that like everybody was very, very acknowledging the fact that like, you know, this was becoming a threat to the likes of Qualcomm and, and, and whatnot with where they were going. And they've also done a good job with, I think, uh, JSET on uh, uh, assemb uh, OSAT, assembly uh, and test, you know, after you've made the chip, the process that goes, that, that goes there. So, which is like, you know, the Taiwanese have, you know, I think uh, ASC kind of dominates there with, I think Taiwan has like 50% share or something. But the, those are like the only two areas they've made any progress. They've not made any progress on the capital equipment, software, EDA. You know, they're kind of choked off on the IP. They got in trouble with the shit when they were trying to uh, knock off uh, Micron. They made some progress in, in, in NAND. But, like, you know, they're going to continue to invest, you know, tens of billions of dollars. And at some point, like, are we heading to a global economy that has, you know, dual capabilities? Because if they catch you, and you kind of constantly have them chasing that. What do you want to call it? The when like the dog is running around the, the rabbit. The, yeah, the rat. If you constantly have pace them chasing that, and then like yeah, the pace center, and like one day they finally get it. But what happens overnight the next day to your advantages in so many areas? And more importantly, when you think about currencies, the yuan, trade, and everything else on the lower side of the value chain that you haven't been bitching about that you buy from them. What do you have to trade? I mean, like, like again, like when they're buying four hundred billion dollars a year in, in semiconductors, right? Like that's a that's a big advantage, and that provides balance. Yeah, and I guess that's the point of also the what you were saying earlier with the highly specialized and distributed value chain, like even being able to bring in one part of the chain is not really a redundancy because you still have to go back to Korea, go back to Japan, probably go back to China anyway. So it's like, it's sort of. Yeah. Like you need the same, you're going to have to stockpile the same rare earths. And we went through this with the rare earth conversation, right? Because these things all come together and they're specialists in everything. Like you're picking and choosing 
you're actually not getting the independence you think you're getting. And the important element is you need to continue to sell to them because there's such a huge percentage of demand. Like if you were to shut that down, what happens? You know, it's an economic mess. So like you can have what's happening right now, which they can't do anything about, is Huawei gets to the point where they're a threat and you kneecap them. And that's fine. Like they realize that there's nothing they can do about that. And like they're gonna double down and and continue to try to push forward and 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 and, and navigate that that dynamic. But if your solution is to locate something physically in the continental United States, when so many of your companies are are dependent on demand that's coming out of Asia, because your market's not big enough. Five percent of global consumers are in the United States. So it's, it's a hard fact for people to realize, but like the U.S. stock market and the you know the trillion dollar companies that we talk about in, in global market value, remove Aramco. They're all American. They do business everywhere. So locating a foundry, like this is why I think that like the conversation that existed pre-COVID, that's why we need to be very careful with what's happening under COVID and to look at what's happening today and say, oh, we screwed up. Now COVID is a, is a lesson to remind us that we can't be dependent on Taiwan. You're not dependent on Taiwan. Taiwan just so happens to be the optimal place and like to the guy who started the company to have this back-end infrastructure where it's located today. It doesn't make sense to try to move it all over here because what's coming here is the finished products. If you're worried about national security and defense, yeah, you can have a couple leading edge uh, fabs in America, but like that's not gonna give you supply chain independence should another like fiasco hit because you're, you're, you're dependent on the Koreans and you're dependent on the Japanese and you're dependent on the Chinese to put it all together. And you're dependent on all that happening from a trade balance standpoint so that when you walk into your kitchen, you pop open the microwave and you turn on the blender that like those goods aren't 10 times the cost or you're going to have to start making those in your country again. Where does that leave investors thinking about the what are you thinking about i guess you don't have to speak for all investors the the semiconductor sector because i'm looking as we're talking i'm looking i've got nvidia intel amd micron taiwan semiconductor and then a bunch of random right now i have amcor technology and onto innovation but the charts all look the same right they're all the, the only difference is whether it's steady up and to the right or whether it's like cyclical up and down and then all of a sudden really up and to the right in the last couple of years. Well, I mean, NVIDIA is experiencing a turbocharged version of 2018. Like with the, the Ethereum network added more hash rate in the last three months than it did in that whole cycle. So there's GPU mining, there's gaming, there's data center. Same stuff that was happening two years ago, two and a half years ago again, in like a, a demand explosion. But when you think about the space from an investing standpoint and what's being discussed today, the semi-cap equipment space where, you know, AMAT, LAM Research, ASML, KLAC, these guys, Cadence, Synopsys, when you think about that dynamic, like it's as good as can be for them right now, right? I don't know, like the, did you listen to any of the Applied Materials CEO? I just saw their deck. I saw their presentation for 
their five year, three years. I mean, suffice years. to say, he was very bullish. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that's kind of like, how can you not be very bullish in this environment? Because it's, it's like, you know, it's chip heaven. Okay. Everybody is, is essentially the perception un, is underinvested. But like, I asked you this on the backside of COVID, are you going to have a period where utilization rates significantly drop off? Like, will, will notebook demand really scale back in 2022 relative to 2020 and the, let's call it the first nine months of 2021? Yeah, I wonder. Well, and it's a super. I guess to tie it to the foundry discussion, it's a super cyclical business too. And so historically, and I feel like I've seen some murmurings about maybe it's no longer such, but if you've got shortages now and whatever the response is, if there's any more additions in capacity, it would seem like, I mean, yeah, semiconductor demand is generally growing, but at some point you overbuild and we have it seems to me like those semi some of those semicap equipment companies have really strong three year cycles where it like it's bust and then it's recovery and then it's boom and it just seems very clockwork and i just wonder we're sort of naturally approaching that anyhow turbocharged by covid and then if we have these shortages it feels like we're setting up for the next side of that but i don't know if there's some other Obviously, I'm generalizing quite broadly, but I, I'm just, is there some other factor that would keep this from not being a situation where six to 12 months from now, semiconductors have, a, I mean, Micron is a classic battleground value, but also super cyclical and the sort of stock that people fight over. And it has had, well, it's up like 60% since last fall. And... Yeah, and it like has sort of shattered its cyclical range that it was in for the last three years. Like, is that has the world changed for Micron, or are we in this weird temporary situation and it will get sorted out? And then their the demand, their discipline on keeping DRAM supply down, along with their competitors, doesn't hold or whatever else. I don't know. That's I guess that's what I'm curious about right now. Let's say by the end of the year, Ethereum gets to closer to proof of stake from proof of work and you don't like you know by 2022 mid mid 2022 you're not using ethereum you're not using gpus for mining if you think about what happened in 2018 if you believe a scenario like this could happen like 2018 it was like crypto crashed mining profitability actually improved temporarily and there was more gpu demand and then it came off in a, in a situation where you were to completely shut it off, I don't know how many GPUs are out there mining, but like they would have to be, that would be supply that could be used for something else. Notebooks, let's say that a hybrid work environment and you, you, you dust off the old PC in the office and uh, you don't need to buy a new notebook for three to four more years, maybe five years, whatever the lifespan is these days. And gaming, you souped up your rigs, you spent a ton of money, everybody bought new consoles. It's not very hard to envision a scenario in 2020, 2022 where there's all this excess capacity. I mean, you don't have to, you don't have to go like, yes, cars are going to have more 
electric content, there's more IoT, there's more stuff on the analog end. But again, like you'll have spare capacity that will come out of what seems like nowhere in a blink of an eye, if you believe that. So you probably don't want to be long chips past, let's say maybe, you know, the fall. If you have a if you have a viewpoint like that, because it's hard to envision a scenario that is better than what it is today. Because they all have filled order books. And remember, this is a space that before, like, you know, back in the day, for example, on the capital equipment side, you're not really looking at revenue, you're looking at book to bill because you'll have, you'll see cancellation. And again, going back to where we're at pre-COVID, you had significant double and triple ordering and the likes, like, you know, Huawei was going like crazy, ordering chips for, you know, the five nanometer Kirin processor or their phones. So there's a lot of stuff that was going on pre-COVID that caused some disruption. And then like along comes COVID and, and that's that's added a whole nother rung of whatever you want to call it. Uh, unnatural. Uh, effect. Yeah, or... demand effect, whatever you want to say. And what is, again, like like something that kind of operates with a, with a pretty solid, delicate balance. And these days we seem to have a lot more of these things. I mean, we just came out of, you know, a GPU hangover, right? Like, you know, 15 months ago. So, I mean, I still remember spending enough time arguing with people about like why I got bullish on NVIDIA at the end of 2019 and people were like, you're crazy. I mean, that was, you know, the stock was hovering under 200 and you still had people who were like, look, it's a difficult environment going forward. I mean, we've gone to the complete other end of the spectrum where you've had everything go right. Forget the acquisitions as well. But that's a, that's the type of, you know, and then like, that's where like, you'll see like people who ordered machines of all of a sudden they don't need them. You know, that order book that, because these things take a long time to make. So that order book that really looks backed up may, may start to lighten by 2022. Uh, you may see some cancellations by mid-year. If like all of a sudden we realize that, hey, you know, we've got a glut in this space, in this space, in that space. And, you know, the demand from EVs is not as big as we thought it was going to be immediately. So we don't need to invest at the rate we were thinking. Because they're already investing. I mean, there's three big more fabs coming on in China. There's like two more, I think, due in the slated in the US. Like there's there's decent plans in, in the near future. They've broken ground in Taiwan. So it's not like there isn't supply that's being added throughout what's happening. So if you were to change the demand equation, I think it can get tricky. I mean, like you're not going to get a better scenario than now when like, I mean, like uh, all uh, uh, every government is talking about chip shortages. Yeah, which, yeah, you have to invert to what happens after that. And, and, it's... Uh, and as you can see, Trump did not break. I mean, the Biden administration has kind of, you know, they've held, they've held the line on China with respect to semiconductors. Yeah, I mean, yeah, as we're, We've been talking so long about how to distinguish temporary from more longer lasting things. And that even goes in the political sphere as we now are sort of in the Biden administration. Things that people were, I think China is an example. People were anticipating a softer posture towards China. And that's not really played out yet, even if it's a little bit less of a headline driver from week to week. I mean, if you're a smart politician, why would you? You're not going to win any any points for taking a softer ground. And like they don't like the US administration doesn't really need to. 
I mean, I think it's, I, look, where I think you need to draw the line is that like, you shouldn't be like, you don't need to be, be providing incentives to Google, uh, Apple, uh, Amazon, and Facebook and uh, their related suppliers to locate, locate stuff here. Those companies are doing just fine. They have unlimited resources. If they felt they really needed to build here, they would. Yeah, and I'm sure if, yeah, Amazon specifically with the H2 was pretty good at eliciting incentives. And I mean, all the others do it well as well. And so I'm yeah, sure. that's what they do. So, like you're just going to get, you're going to get some subsidies for whatever is in the roadmap down the line. And I just, I don't think that they deserve it. You know, when we're not, like if we're not going to be achieving some sort of fail safe backup plan, you know, we'll, we'll, the next time there's a crisis, you're going to wake up and be like, oh, this accomplished nothing because this little component is missing. It's like the, uh, did you follow like in the beginning of COVID when they couldn't get the unemployment checks out because they're missing cobalt, cobalt engineers. Yeah. Yep. So like there's going to be a, the equivalent choke point like that down the road, whether it's you know, magnet metals or something, right? Where it's like, well, we, we, we've got the leading edge process node here. You know, we're manufacturing the full capacity and these chips are coming out. And it's like, yeah, but we don't have the OSAT set up here to do this stuff here. We actually were shipping these to China to get that done and then shipping them back here. So like, that's like, that's where you just look at it and it's like, 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 you can't be stupid about something like that. I mean, you have to appreciate, and you have to appreciate global trade that like, in fact, the imbalance that is that comes back to you in other goods and services in the country being cheap because they're dependent on that. Like if they can get to a point where they're dependent on you for nothing, that's not a good place to be as the U.S. economy. Right. My dad's girlfriend is a COBOL programmer and <laughs> somehow did not, she's not the... <laughs> I wouldn't say she's the like risk, most risk on type of person. She did not somehow leverage that period into mm-hmm. Cobalt being like one million dollars <laughs> per hour of my time. I'm, that I'm was her launching a consulting firm. <laughs> yeah, because my dad used to give her shit for that big like Cobalt is like an ancient programming language is how I understand it. Uh, I mean, she was she must have learned it in the Soviet Union, so. Um, we're the last busy Y2K, bro. Yeah, yeah, that that sounds about right. All right, any any other last thoughts on semi the semiconductor situation, the shortages, the the state of the world, and global trade? No, let's play a friendly game of chess. That's what our leader with Matthew Broderick's war game is that global thermal nuclear war has no winners. <laughs> <laughs> That's mutually assured destruction. That's the. That's where we are. I yeah, I just I don't know if that's the right parallel or if the right parallel is World War One, where I think there was well, also if you had if you had a computer and it ran a simulation and like you were like the Chinese about everything they could do with Taiwan, right? From a chip standpoint, it just comes back with like them blowing themselves up. <laughs> right. So there's like there's 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 really nothing there that they can get out of it other than disrupting uh their economy the worst which is fine some people actually want to do that at some point like there are people who like chaos but i mean like that that that's when you can sit there and say you know you got a problem 
Some people just want to watch the world burn. Exactly. So, all right, good stuff, Akram. This is uh, I, I do think, yeah. So we we haven't talked semiconductors in a while, and I think this is it's going to be an interesting space to kind of track as we. Yeah, I think it'll definitely. My take on it is, I'm going to start, you know, really thinking harder about it in the in the end of the summer, early fall. Yep, that's but that's there's a, a couple things to drill into. Like, is is there going to be an Ethereum end of mining? And uh, is there going to be kind of like the COVID hangover in, you know, notebooks, PCs, uh, et cetera? I, I just don't even know how to explain what proof of state versus proof of work is. So I guess we'll have to cover that another time. We'll get an, we'll get, we'll get an expert on here to, to walk us through Ethereum 2.0. There we go. Because it was going to be a hybrid, but now they seem committed on like their ending mining. Well, that's mining is like the the least ecological aspect of it all, right? So that would be. I mean, uh, yeah, it definitely uh, would make uh, environmentalists happy. All right, let's leave it there before we get too far into crypto. Good stuff, Huckle. All right, dude. Thank you for listening to the Razor's Edge. Subscribe to this wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman and at Akram's Razor with suggestions, requests, or anything else. We aim to publish this every Tuesday morning and love to hear from you. If you can share this with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really be grateful as that will help the podcast grow and improve. This has been a Shortman Studios production. Our theme song is Move On by Soquel. Thank you for listening and see you next week.